this week on the Back Table Podcast. The process of transitioning is different for everybody. Typically, a transgender person feels this way from birth. So even when they were two, they felt like they were the opposite gender. Obviously, they don't have surgery when they're two. <laughs> so now, and actually Children's has a transgender clinic where they'll start seeing kids who start to tell their parents they feel this way. And so everyone starts at different points in time, depending on their background and support structure. Some people wait until they're retired from their profession to start transitioning. I have a 71-year-old that just retired and now is ready to live their best life. So <laughs> usually when they come to me, they've at least done some therapy and hormone therapy. And then typically next steps is facial feminization because they, they just want to blend in, you know, in public. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern here in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist uh, also practicing in Dallas. We're your hosts. We're excited uh, to be here. How's it going, Gopi? <laughs> it's going good. It's going good. I'm very excited, as always, for all of our topics, but very excited for this one, um, just because I think that uh, this is an important topic and the uh, surgeries are at the forefront in the field. So I'll let you go ahead and introduce our guests and our show. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty stoked for this one as well. We have Dr. Sarah Saxon on the podcast today. And um, Sarah is a dear friend. We met back in 2015. She joined the faculty at UT Southwestern. I was a resident. I was a chief resident and really hit it off, you know, have some good um, good memories and, and have good, good adventures. Um, she has since gone on to um, open her own practice in Austin. She's a facial plastic surgeon. She also has an office in Dallas. She obtained her medical degree from UT San Antonio. She completed her residency at the University of New Mexico. And then she completed a fellowship in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery at Boston University under the mentorship of Jeffrey Spiegel. She's here today to talk to us about facial feminization surgery. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you guys. Good to see you as well. So Sarah, just tell us a little bit about, you know, your practice and what, what your setup is like in Austin right now. Yeah. So I left UT Southwestern about four years ago and it took me another six months or so to open my practice in Austin. And I mainly do about 50% of my practice is facial feminization and the other part is everything else. So um, since then, I've grown the practice to also have a med spa called Breathe Aesthetics and Wellness. And then we just opened our Dallas office two months ago. So that's very exciting. People, I know. <laughs> We've been so busy this last year after COVID that I'm looking for a bigger office space now in Austin and I'm uh, in the planning stages of starting a fellowship, actually, as well. Congratulations. I that. I'm not sure. Cool. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That's wonderful. So, yeah. It's for you. Yeah. So tell us about facial feminization surgery. You know, I'm not that far out of residency, but I maybe a little almost close to 10 years, but, you know, we're in, we're in counting. Um, and I don't recall, you know, 
really having the opportunity to even see any of those or really know that that type of surgery was going on. So just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So uh, facial feminization is a grouping of procedures that are geared towards feminizing the face. So that can be a number of things like bony recontouring of the face, a cranioplasty or mandible contouring. It also involves everything else that we do regularly, like rhinoplasty, facelift, brow lifts, lip lifts, and also skin rejuvenation, because all those things play a part in helping the face look feminine. So we want light to bounce off the face in and, and towards the eyes. And so Dr. Spiegel, who I trained with in Boston, he did a lot of the pioneering research in what makes a face look feminine. And he found that the upper third of the face has the most impact on looking feminine and also looking young. So I incorporate facial feminization into my everyday facial analysis. So uh, I consider it basically everything that I do, um, not just in the transgender community. So when I look at someone's face in a consult, it's a little bit different than someone who's not trained to do facial feminization. Back when I trained, not many people did those procedures. Really, it was only Dr. Spiegel who was training fellows to do his techniques. And now it's become a little bit more mainstream. So a lot of academic centers around the country are learning how to do these surgeries. So it's becoming more common now. I remember doing a Grand Rounds presentation. My chief here and you were like, you were my mentor. And, and we, it was for facial feminization. And I remember you kind of explaining the concepts of how, you know, facial feminization is kind of the equivalent of, you know, of youth of, you know, make, you know, when people want surgery to look younger, it's a lot of the same concepts, you know, as looking more feminine. And, mm -hmm. you know, it makes sense when you think about, you know, you look at little kids and if they're not dressed, you know, in, you know, blue or pink, sometimes you're like, I, I don't know, because they all look like little girls because yeah. little like youth looks feminine, right? Yeah. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, and it's the same concept as someone gets older, they start to look more and more alike too. So if you see an older woman who's never taken care of her skin, who, you know, her brows have fallen, the skin of her neck has sort of started to sag and it's bringing more emphasis to the lower face and less to the upper face. So if you look at an older man and an older woman, they tend to look very similar too. Facial feminization as a particular field just gives me more tools in my toolbox to help someone look softer. So if I'm seeing a cisgendered woman, which we'll get into terms a little bit later. So if I, if I'm Con consulting with a cisgendered woman, I sometimes still will recognize some bony contours that are a little more masculinizing to the face and recommend that for their treatment plan. But um, now that it's becoming more commonplace and if people are, you know, Googling and looking online at options for them, it's not such a shock when I recommend, you know, a cranioplasty for their um, procedure. So I think it's important to go ahead and get into some of the terms. Mm -hmm. And also just because as a healthcare provider, it is important for us to understand how to take care of our transgender patients for, you know, whatever it is that they come in for. For me with peds, if I have a transgender pediatric patient who's coming in for sinus infections, I just want to make sure I understand the terminology and their, and so could we go into, you use the word cisgender, we say transgender can we just go into some of the, what, what, what we should know? Yeah, it can be very confusing. Even, you know, I have to 
look things up to make sure I have things right all the time as well. And I do this every day. So <laughs> not to put, just don't put any pressure on yourself to feel like you have to get things perfect all the time. So transgender means that a person identifies as the opposite gender of what they were assigned at birth. So if their birth certificate said that they are male, they identify as female now. Cisgender means they identify as the same gender assigned at birth. So like if you go back to chemistry, you know, the cis conformation of a molecule is the same side kind of. And then now you have a few other terms that are becoming more common really in the last five to 10 years. So there's gender fluidity, meaning someone doesn't really, they can go one day as identifying as female and the next day they may identify as male. So they kind of go back and forth. So a lot of times in surgery, they want to be able to have some feminine features, but be able to, you know, if they want one day to live as male, then they can. And then gender, uh, a non-binary person uh, means that they don't identify as either. They're somewhere in between. So typically their pronouns would be more like they, them, instead of he or she. No, that's very helpful. A lot of times, and I feel like with research, with demographics, I always think of, should I be using sex or gender? You know, even when you're thinking about, you know, looking at a, you know, chart review, prospective study in demographics, I wonder, because gender and sex, you know, sex, you know, what you're assigned to at birth is, I feel like. Yeah. It can be confusing with surgery because if someone's of childbearing age and they identify as male, but they still have a uterus, they could still be pregnant. So they'd still need a pregnancy test before surgery and they still need pap smears. They still need all the regular medical care, which in primary care, it can be limiting too, because there are very few primary care providers that feel comfortable. And even insurance providers say if they identify as male, then, you know, they're not going to cover a pap smear. (laughs) Right. So everything's still changing and we have a long way to go. Yeah. 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 Everyone's trying to figure out how to, how to, how to change things and and make it work. Yeah. (laughs) Can you, um, can you talk to us about the process of transitioning and, you know, what does that mean and what, what steps are involved? Yeah. So uh, the process of transitioning is different for everybody. Typically, a transgender person feels this way from birth. So even when they were two, they felt like they were the opposite gender. Obviously, they don't have surgery when they're two. (laughs) So now, and actually Children's has a transgender clinic where they'll start seeing kids who start to tell their parents they feel this way and They'll have group therapy sessions or individual therapy sessions. At a certain point in time, they start to take hormones. And this can this can be either as a child or in adolescence or as an adult. So everyone starts at different points in time, depending on their background and support structure. Some people wait until they're retired from their profession to start transitioning. I have a 71-year-old that just retired and now is ready to live their best life. So (laughs) usually when they come to me, they've at least done some therapy and hormone therapy. And then typically next steps is facial feminization because they they just want to blend in, you know, in public. And then they may or may not choose to do 
top or bottom surgery, meaning like breast augmentation or genitalia reconstruction. And so oftentimes I'll have patients that just do facial surgery and that's it. And so going back to sort of the, the beginning where uh, when we think of facial feminization, it's youthful. And it, from what you were saying before, you use some of the same principles of fa facial feminization for cisgender women as well as transgender women. When patients come to you in clinic, does that make a difference in how you with your approach in terms of what kinds of surgeries or augmentations or changes that you're thinking about for them? It may, mainly makes a difference to know, you know, I usually ask, do you want to look as feminine as possible? So if they're transgender versus gender fluid or non-binary, I always ask because I never want to assume. So even if they come in identifying as female to me, they may not want to do that every day. If they're cisgender coming in, I still want to know like, do you want to look more feminine? Oftentimes they'll come in asking me, you know, I just want to look good. I can't really put my finger on it, but, you know, I need your input because <laughs> I've seen with the work you do on transgender patients. So I feel like I look very masculine and I'm open to whatever procedure you would recommend. So those patients, oftentimes I'll recommend, you know, cranioplasty or jaw contouring, even rhinoplasty is a very feminizing procedure. But in general, I think of everybody kind of the same, like as far as structure and soft tissue, whether they're transgender or cisgender, um, and I'm kind of bringing them to the same point. Yeah. So it's similar in that you're, you're, everyone's a little bit different. You know, yeah. some people want the works and some people right. just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And I even have cisgendered men come to me because they have a super prominent brow bone, kind of feel like they have that Neanderthal appearance. And even they, even though they're not trans, they, you know, facial feminization can benefit them because it just gives her a more softer appearance and youthful, uh, youthful. Yeah. <laughs> but also people tend to think that they look angry all the time when they don't feel that way. So it can just kind of soften all their features. Great point. Yeah. <laughs> can you talk to us about the, the timeline for surgeries? You mentioned you you have, you know, patients who are, you know, in their 70s. What's the what's the other end of the spectrum? Is there an age that's too young? Um, I typically don't like to do any big surgeries until after 18 years old, just because they're one is more of a maturity issue. So they're hard to recover from. There's a lot of swelling. If you're too young doing the surgeries, they don't really understand the whole recovery process as much. And I want their facial structures to be mature so that they don't change as they grow. So there are a few things that I can do younger than 18, which are the same for anybody. Like if they're over 16, I may want to do a rhinoplasty or, you know, I have a 17 year old that I'm seeing that has a very, very prominent jaw and he's not transitioning yet, but still it's more of a over-exaggerated feature on his face. And it's something that we can start with. And then once he graduates high school, we can go into other surgeries. So a typical, a pretty typical time for someone too is between that high school and college transition because they just want to start fresh in college. Right. But uh, the younger you start transitioning, the less surgery you need. So, you know, the, the brow isn't quite as harsh. They haven't lost a lot of hair, you know, with temporal recession in the hairline. They haven't lost, you know, a lot of elasticity in their skin, so they don't need as many skin treatments or 
like facelifts or blepharoplasty or anything like that. So it's usually just, you know, bone contouring and restructuring, depending on when they started hormones. So if someone starts hormones at puberty, they really don't need that much surgery because they haven't developed those, you know, secondary sex characteristics of the face. Can we go into some of the surgeries now? I think, you know, we keep talking about these surgeries, plural. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go into some of them. Yeah. So I'll start with the upper part of the face. So the most common procedure I do is a type 3 cranioplasty. So there are three types of cranioplasty when we're talking about feminizing the forehead. So type 1 is just burring down the bone. Type 2 is kind of a hybrid where you burr down the bone, but you can add in graft material to the upper forehead. I generally only do type 3 cranioplasty, which means you can actually burr the lateral brow, but right in front of the frontal sinus, if you burr that area, the anterior table of the frontal sinus gets too thin. So you actually have to set it back. So remove the anterior table, set it back within the sinus. I use, you know, titanium plates and screws to set it in place. At the same time, I kind of call it my forehead package because I'll lower the hairline and raise the brows at the same time. So... (laughs) So it's three procedures in one, and that had the most dramatic effect on feminizing the face. Something else that's more kind of specific to facial feminization is improving the fullness of the cheeks. So I'll do cheek implants or fat grafting in the cheeks oftentimes, making the nose have less character. So in a rhinoplasty, a feminization rhinoplasty is a lot different than a regular rhinoplasty. I'm significantly deprojecting the nose, increasing rotation, reducing a large dorsal hump. A male nose is, has, has a lot more features to it than a feminine nose. So in making things so much smaller, they typically have a longer recovery time, even than a year. I see changes up to two years. And then moving down, I'll do a lip lift. So shortening the upper lip and then contouring the jawline to making it more narrow, um, which can be done with osteotomies or just contouring with a drill or a powered rasp. And then a trach shave, otherwise known as a chondrolaryngoplasty, which means removing the Adam's apple. And I'll use, you know, fiber optic scopes and surgery to make sure I identify the anterior commissure so that the vocal cords aren't damaged. So those are the typical things I do. Of course, in addition, like we talked about, I'll oftentimes recommend sometimes a blepharoplasty, sometimes a facelift. If I have to do a lot of those things, I'll stage out the procedures. So I'll do all the structural changes first and then six months later, come back and do the eight more aging procedures after swelling goes down. And sometimes I don't need to go as far as a facelift because you can get some loose skin around the jawline if you're making it that much smaller. So I can't, I have a device called FaceTight, which is radio frequency skin tightening. So I can come back and do that in the office six months later and just tighten the skin around the jawline. In between that time, I have them do hair removal and skin resurfacing and IPL and good skin products, tweezing their eyebrows this whole bit. (laughs) (laughs) And would you typically do all of those procedures in the same setting? Like you, you talked about, you know, the cranioplasty and, you know, rhinoplasty and man, mandible contouring. You know, do you, for example, have like a, a limit, like, you know, where you let's only do, you know, three or four at a time or, or you know, what is the, what are your thoughts on that? There, they can be done all at once. When I was a fellow, you know, we had a fellow, a chief resident and Dr. Spiegel, and we would do it all at once. 
but it's just me in my practice. So <laughs> my body starts hurting after a while. So I like to cut it off at six hours. So it's more time-based for me. Anything beyond six or seven hours, I really need to start staging it out just because my neck and back cannot handle it. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody I, wants their surgeon to be tired anyway. <laughs> and, you know, since I don't have residents with me, I don't take breaks to go to the bathroom or get food or water. So uh, that's about as long as I can handle it. Yeah, that's understandable. In terms of the forehead cranioplasty, so just so that I have it visualized better for myself, you're literally taking the anterior table of the frontal sinus off, mm -hmm. reducing it or recontouring it, mm -hmm. and then placing it back and using uh, plates to... Uh -huh. Is that what... Yeah. So, um, and, and really, I'm not really doing anything to the anterior table itself. It's all the surrounding bone. Got it. So I'll, I basically start from lateral to medial and contour the bone how I need to. And what that does is that ends up blue lining the frontal sinus. Okay. And then I'm able to, you know, take a saw and remove that anterior table after I've already surrounded it in the level that I needed to be. Okay. And then after that, I... Uh, drill down the inner sinus septum. Okay. And then that allows me to set back the anterior table. Okay. Um, at the same time, I'm looking inside their sinus. So I was going to say, so are you in the mucosa then? Yeah. Okay. So if there are any air cells that are blocking the outflow tracts, you know, I you can, can remove those. <laughs> so. Is there a risk of like uh, mucoseals in the future or what kinds of... Uh, What's the complication of chronic sinusitis or frontal outflow tract problems? Yeah, like theoretically, you would think that there would be a risk of mucosal, but Dr. Spiegel, having done this for decades, has never really seen that. I'm sure if there are surgeons who don't have a background in ENT, maybe they don't know to identify problematic air cells that might be blocking or, you know, I'm making sure that if there is a problem with flow, you know, the... Um, through the nasal frontal duct that I have everything open. And so I can make those changes at the time. But if someone doesn't have a background in sinus surgery, they may not be able to identify that. And I make sure that there's no mucosa that's, you know, caught in any crevices of the bone. Right. So I've never had any issues. It actually gets better more than worse for most of my patients. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever have to, do you get preoperative imaging for the uh, forehead recontouring or the... Um, mandibular contra is there a need for any CTs or any x-rays or anything like that? So that's a pretty controversial topic because there are some surgeons that absolutely think that, you know, you need CT scans, but they're also not using the same technique that Dr. Spiegel uses. So um, well, like I said, with blue lining the frontal situs, you, I'm not doing image guidance, so there's not really much need. And if the supraorbital nerves are in the way, I can actually, you know, yeah, I can see them. So, and if they're in a foramen instead of a notch, I can just remove the bone underneath the nerve and get them out of the way. In revision cases, I do require a CT scan because I don't really know what other surgeon did. If it's a revision case, they often will have just burred down the bone and it's super thin and I may need to do bone grafts and things like that. I use that for planning. Uh, same for jaw contouring. I'm not like, making big osteotomies, but if they have had surgery in the past, I'll get a CT scan. Or if I do need to do osteotomies, say they just have a really overgrown chin and jawline and you do a sliding genioplasty, I like to make those measurements first beforehand. I don't like to 
just my aesthetic is more natural instead of overly aggressive jaw surgery. So there are some surgery surgeons that, you know, will remove the angle of the mandible. I don't think that that often looks good and it makes the upper face kind of flow into the neck without a defined jawline. And I think that aesthetic is going out of style, honestly. So I like to keep it looking natural, but more narrow and just a more kind of slim physique to the jaw structure. And to do that, I don't need to do CT scans. Where's your incision for your mandible contouring? Is it transoral? Yeah, transoral. Just the same as you would do a mandible fracture. So I I usually leave a cuff of tissue around the mental nerves, though, because we are retracting so much and using powered instruments. And so that just leaves an extra bit of cushion so that I don't avulse the mental nerves. So I'll make an incision in the gingival labial sulcus in the midline and then separate incisions posteriorly and leave a cuff of tissue in between. And is it for that care, is it just like peridex rinses and do you do oral antibiotics? Is there yeah diet? How does that work afterwards? I do oral antibiotics and peridex. I actually started giving everyone steroids after surgery because they have massive swelling for a long time. And with cranioplasty, their eyes can swell shut um, for the first 24 hours. Since I started using steroids after surgery, just the first 24 hours, I'll put them on a Medrol dose pack at home. But while they're overnight in the hospital, I'll have them on scheduled Decadron. And that helps a lot. So yeah, most of, most of these patients are staying in-house overnight, overnight one yeah. night or so. Mm-hmm. And they don't typically have a lot of pain. I, I did a lot of research in my residency on regional anesthesia. So I always do nerve blocks before I do surgery in any region of the face. And I'll mix lidocaine and bupivacaine. So it's more long acting through the case. And most of my patients are just alternating Tylenol and ibuprofen after surgery. They don't have pain. It's just a lot of swelling. Yeah. Wow. So no. So most of them don't need narcotics. No. That's amazing. <laughs> What's your mix of lidocaine and bupivacaine? It's just a half and half mixture. So of one percent lidocaine or one percent lidocaine with epinephrine, and then quarter percent bupivacaine with epinephrine. Recently, quarter percent bupivacaine with epi was discontinued. So I usually have to get the pharmacy to mix that or I add it in myself if I'm in the office. So I have separate epi that I can add in. Gotcha. And then um, this might be a ignorant question, but is there then a wrap that you're doing? Yeah. So they, I tell them they're, they're going to look like a Q-tip when they come in. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I basically, so in the hairline incision, I've transitioned all my suturing to subcuticular and deep. So I'll close the galea with PDS, close, uh, do subcuticular suturing with monocryl. And then I add, I actually started injecting exosomes, which y'all may or may not have heard of. I don't know. They're it's basically the same technology as the COVID vaccine where they can can inject mRNA to boost their healing capacity. So that incision heals a lot faster and um, I see hair growth through it a lot faster. And so I don't really have them do anything aside from putting ointment on the incision, redressing it with a compressive wrap. So it's not like you're putting Dermabond or anything on top. It's the exosome and then that helps it heal. That's awesome. And that's an injection? That's an injection, yeah. So I'm using that for scars, using it for skin rejuvenation. I've seen a lot of 
collagen production. So I've actually stopped doing dermal fillers in the office this last quarter because I use exosomes for everything now. <laughs> wow. Do you have to do multiple, um, do you have to do multiple treatments? No, just one for scars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. How long does it, is this a dumb question? How long does it last for? Or is it once, do you have to get boosters? I just, with the mRNA technology, I just didn't know. No, it's basically permanent because it's just acting in that acute healing phase of the incision. Okay. If I'm injecting for hair growth, sometimes they'll need repeat injections, but typically only one. So on the topic of um, the exosomes, we wanted to talk about what you like um, the kind of non-OR procedures as well. Mm -hmm. I think this is a good segue. You know, what kinds of things are you doing in the office? Gosh, I do just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you have? Right? I know. <laughs> so I started out just with a microneedling pin and chemical peels. And then as I had patients kind of reach their limit in what I could do with those devices, I added in an IPL. You know, it's Texas, so everybody has a lot of sun damage to their skin. After that, I added in Embrace RF, which is a combination of Morpheus 8, so radio frequency microneedling, and uh, FaceType, that radio frequency skin tightening device that I talked about. So I do a lot of that. I don't have actual lasers in the office because I use so much radio frequency in the office. After I started using those technologies enough, then I had patients that wanted some body contouring and they didn't really want to go to another location. You know, we develop a trust over time. I had no intention of doing body tight, which is a body handpiece for face tight. So I invested in some non-invasive body contouring treatments through BTL aesthetics. So that's all using radio frequency. It works really well. And then M-Sculpt, which sculpts muscle. In our IPL platform, it also has laser hair removal. So a lot of my trans patients will get laser hair removal through our office too. But if there's if their hair is too light, they'll go. Um, there are a few electrolysists in town that do a really good job. So there's not a whole lot that I can't do in the office. <laughs> I do a lot of neuromodulators too. But like I said, I've just kind of gone away from dermal fillers because I just do so much fat grafting and exosomes and skin regeneration that I don't really need it anymore. And so that's just something that's happened this year that I realized like we don't do enough anymore because we don't need to. So <laughs> might as well not even do like a syringe here or there because it's not really worth the cost of buying the product. It's something really exciting. Myself and my PA is getting a lifestyle medicine certification. So along with the body treatments, we'll be kind of counseling them on lifestyle modifications and diet and alcohol consumption, exercise and all that good stuff. So their results are boosted even more. That's great. So, I just don't sleep. <laughs> but just make sure not everybody else does. <laughs> I feel like I don't work a day in my life because I, I really love what I do. So it's wonderful. <laughs> Can we um, go back to the um, chondrolingoplasty? Yeah. The, the quote Adam's apple or the thyroid mm -hmm. notch. Mm -hmm. Can you go into exactly sure. how that works um, and what kind of, you know, it, are you at risk of having voice changes? At, like, tell us, like, go into yeah. it. So I use the same technique as Dr. Spiegel. So he developed a way that you can identify the anterior commissure while you're kind of in the middle of surgery. And so what I have the anesthesiologists do is they put in an LMA 
instead of an ET tube. And then once I have everything exposed, I can use a 22 gauge needle to kind of put it through the cartilage. And then the anesthesiologist puts down a laryngoscope so I can see on the screen if my needle is in the right location and mark it with a bovi on the outside. And so any cartilage above that will come off. Sometimes I'm a little low, sometimes I'm a little high. So I can precisely identify the anterior commissure with that technique. And I, about 20% of the population, their vocal cords will attach a little bit high. So they might still have a little bump, but they don't have any voice changes. So I've never had a patient that had hoarseness after surgery beyond just a few days from swelling around the larynx. There are though, however, a lot of surgeons out there that are guessing. So the incidence of hoarseness after that procedure is still pretty high because there are a lot of surgeons doing that surgery that don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And they're not looking at the vocal cords since the intercommature is generally 50% the height of the thyroid cartilage. They're basically saying, okay, I can take off all that cartilage above it, but that's not the case every time. Right. I actually got a phone call from a laryngologist in town that he was seeing a patient with hoarseness and the vocal cords just kind of get flaccid because they don't have any tone mm. and it's hard to fix. I, there's not a really good way of fixing that. So more just going to the right person for that procedure first. Okay. It's not difficult. So any otolaryngologist could do it. It's just a matter of using that right technique yeah. and that's published. So uh, if anybody you know, looks up Dr. Spiegel's uh, research, it's readily available. I remember doing this case with you, what, what the, one of the first ones that you did at UC. And yeah. I think the um, it's important to also have an anesthesiologist that's comfortable with what's going on. Because I think <laughs> we like, I think the patient kept swallowing or something. Yeah. And we were, <laughs> we were like, we were like, ah, um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very small incision and yeah, yeah. you can see, you know, where you're at with your scope and you just kind of ronger that that mm -hmm. um, cartilage away. And yeah, I don't drill it. it. I don't drill it. I just use a ronger just to remove it. So you also have to use an LMA that doesn't have a bar across it because <laughs> that'll just completely block your view and kind of flip the epiglottis in your way when the anesthesiologist is putting down the scope. So it usually takes having someone that has done a lot of fiber optic intubations to be comfortable with it. Yeah. So. And the patients are completely sedated. It's not like in voice surgery, thyroplasties, where they're sometimes are able to talk to you. I mean, they're out. They're out. Yeah. Okay. Because you're not like, can you, you're not checking for anything. Like there's no reason yeah. to, because you can see where you are with the, right. with the scope yeah. in. Mm -hmm. And it's quick. It takes me about 30 minutes. So it's not a. It's not a long anesthesia time, but <laughs> they did be out though. <laughs> and there's no concerns uh, for swallowing or anything afterwards because you're not really no. changing that kind of the yeah. structure or, or the yeah. Uh, and, yeah, theoretically they could get a hematoma or seroma in the area, which is you know a bad location to have. But I've never seen that happen. You know, I used to keep patients overnight after that procedure, but I don't anymore just because I've never seen any problems after? Well, you know, for as a provider uh, treating any transgender patient in our ENT clinic for any otolaryngology problem, um, what do you think is the most important thing that we can incorporate or think about uh, as providers and in our practice of how to really 
you know, be a, a good provider for, yeah. for these patients. I think just being aware of um, and being open to, you know, using the right pronouns. If you feel nervous that you're not doing the right thing, you can just ask because they don't mind. You can say, what what pronouns do you prefer to use? And they'll say he, she, or they, them. And, um, and so not to put so much pressure on yourself about it, but to be, to have the right intentions, right? So like when it can be sort of on a subconscious level, you might mess up sometimes <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but as long as you're well-intentioned, I think, EMRs have a long way to go in having the infrastructure to put, you know, what their legal name is versus what they go by and what gender they go by versus, you know, their medical history. Knowing if someone is on hormones, and this is something I didn't touch on before, I do have everyone, especially for longer cases, go off of hormones two weeks before surgery. There's no data to say that there's increased DVT risk, but no one's ever going to do that study because it's too risky. But some people can be on pretty high levels of hormones. You know, as these patients get older, you know, they may need cancer surgeries, things that are hours long and their DVT risk theoretically is pretty high. And they have all the same medical issues that everyone else could have too. So getting pre-op clearance and whatever you need, but just being aware of the specific issues they may have with hormone therapy or the past surgeries they've had. Um, if they've had bottom surgery, getting a Foley in may be a problem if they have strictures. So a lot of things can come up even for me that I don't think about. <laughs> it's a learning process through our whole lifetime. So I'm sure other things will come up as, as we, as more and more people get all these surgeries more commonly, you know? Well, Thank you so much for taking the time today. You're such a inspiration. I'm so proud of you and excited for you. Congratulations on, you know, the new Dallas office. I just, I, I couldn't be happier for you. I would, I would love to do another one on lifestyle medicine as yeah. a compliment to your practice. Like I, I'm, I'm super curious. Could you just give us like, maybe just a quick, just a quick little peek into what that yeah. means. And then I would love to have another podcast on that. Sure. Um, I kind of ran across lifestyle medicine from a friend of mine who's an endocrinologist who now does concierge medicine in San Antonio. And she and I both, you know, don't really, really like the idea of just pushing supplements, which is a lot of what other like integrative medicine programs are like, or, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hormone therapy and and quote unquote lifestyle treatments out there, but it's really just giving people supplements. So lifestyle medicine is more based on diet and food as, you know, a way to cure disease instead of just throwing in medications and, and supplements and pills. And so, but it also incorporates, you know, getting enough sleep and how, what's the data behind all of that. So there's a whole curriculum online developed to train physicians and, you know, allied health professionals to educate people on that. Cause really most of our medical schools don't teach us <laughs> that in our regular training. And I think it's becoming, uh, more, more physicians want to treat patients in a different way rather than just putting a bandaid on it with a pill. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
But it takes time to talk to people about, you know, changing daily habits and things like that. So. It's difficult <laughs> and and not always reimbursed. So right. the, the healthcare system will change yeah. so that those incentives line up. Yeah, it's a little bit easier for me because I'm kind of outside the insurance world now. Right. And I know a lot of colleagues now that did the same in primary care and they just have a model they can spend more time with patients. So it's really rewarding uh, to be able to, you know, celebrate victories with them in a way that's not something that we typically would have done in the same way before. Yeah. So. Absolutely. I'd say a lot of patients coming in for body contouring don't really qualify because their BMI is too high, but at least I can offer them something else and then we can set goals for them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I learned a ton. Thank you for being here with us. Yeah, it was so fun. I can't wait to uh, be back in Dallas again. We'll all have to meet up. (laughs) For sure. I, I just go about every other week. So next time I'm in town, I'll let you know. <laughs> Sounds great. I'll hear here more often then. Yeah, no. I, I know you're on on social media. Can you tell our listeners, you know, where they can connect with you or learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, my Instagram handle is SaxonMD. And then I have two med spa accounts, breathe underscore ATX and breathe underscore Dallas. And my website is SaxonMD.com. And if you... Have any questions for me personally, you can email me at drsaxon at saxonmd.com. Be happy to answer anything. Thank you so much for for sharing. It just, I, I just had a memory about um, <laughs> operating with you and and I don't remember who coined it, but uh, it might've been Linka, but um, but say it, you know, when it was, when we were operating with you, that it's, it's saxy time. <laughs> I still use that. And actually I tell that story to everybody because we have the saxy squad now and <laughs> surgery is saxy time and we have saxy abs and saxy lips, awesome. saxy this and that. And I'll tell people, cause they're like, oh, that's catchy. And I, I'll tell that story of how I found out that you guys <laughs> made that up. <laughs> I think they even gave me a glass mug that has it etched in. This is dancey time. I still think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you again. And um, let's see. Lots of thanks. Thanks to Andong for our social media, Varun Sagi and Wasik Nadim for blog posts. Big thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks for checking out the show today. Please subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Uh, You can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. What do you you think, Dopey? Yeah, find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. We got that down now. (laughs) Thank you. It's a wrap. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.